Hey, podcast community, it's Eric, and I've got something exciting for all you online entrepreneurs out there. If you're looking to take your e-commerce store to the next level, you need to check out Aurora Repricer. With Aura, you can effortlessly reprice your Amazon inventory automatically. Ready to elevate your Amazon business? Head over to milwaukeemafia.com slash Aura, that's A-U-R-A, to get started today. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. I'm Eric. I'm Gavin. Gavin, we're back with another episode. I see you crumbling through some papers there. What do you got for us today for a topic? Uh, You should know. Uh, I don't remember. Okay. So you asked me. (laughs) (laughs) I asked you. Oh, yeah, to do the second part of the uh, previous episode, right? Right. Yeah. Right. So so we've uh, we've got the fall of Stanley Hawkdale. That is correct. All right, so I put I put that together, and uh, uh, I guess we'll do a, a, a really really fast recap for people who don't remember from two weeks ago, um, or from Eric doesn't remember from last week. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so Stanley Hockdale uh, was a star athlete at UW Madison. He worked for the State Highway Patrol for a while. He was hired on uh, as a young man to become the chief of police for Kenosha. At the time, Kenosha was experiencing um, some major, in their opinion, major gambling problems and uh, some public corruption, and they thought he was the guy who would come along and clean that up. Um, And to some extent, he kind of did. He shut down some major players in town, George Ebner and Ali Omara, um, Ollie being a former Milwaukee Brewer. <laughs> you really got Ollie Searle that one out there, huh? <laughs> but it's cool, right? It's cool. And there were city officials, county officials, who were thrown in prison for their role in a bribery scheme to keep gambling open. But the chief did not fall for that. He did not take bribes as far as we know. And he helped testify against some of the people who did. So as near as we can tell... He was a pretty good chief of police for trying to shut down gambling just like they hired him to do. But this is the second part of the story. (laughs) Story, And this is where it all goes. And I think it's important to note, too, that you mentioned at the end of the episode that he kind of sat down with. So at this point in time, we had kind of done a generational change in the gambling audience. There was a new line of, there were no more more brewer players running gambling in Kenosha. There was a whole new group of people. And he had called for a meeting to sit down with that group of people. And from that meeting, the decision was kind of made that instead of trying to shut them down, he was going to work with them. Yes. In exchange, like, he was going to kind of be their eyes and ears, I guess. Is that kind of what the exchange was? Or I... Yeah, like, I'm not entirely clear on, on what the details of their arrangement were. But he, the chief, met personally with um, John Rizzo and William Cavelli, who we know now were, like, the Kenosha guys running the Milwaukee Mafia's gambling. I don't know if the chief knew that or not, but he basically sat down with them. He made them say that they weren't backed by uh, what he called the syndicate, 
They said they were not, which was a lie. And based on that, he kind of said, okay, if you guys like help me out, I'll help you out. It, it's sort of a repeat of going way back, not way back for us because we re-recorded recently, but way, way back with the, with the Vincent Krupe brothel story where they basically, the de- detective there, Gave Krupe a pass based on him helping bring down, down other, other brothels. Pe- right. So yeah. It's the same idea here where the chief, whether he realizes it or not, is actually helping the mafia gambling group by letting them get a pass in exchange for information shutting down other gamblers. Right. Which only makes them bigger. So that's not great. Um, but that's actually not what's going to take him down. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Are you ready? I am ready. April 1st, 1963. An awful Fool's Day prank. An awful April Fool's Day prank was carried out. That's my words. Okay. That's not really what it said. Helen Landis Hawkdale, the chief's wife, was released from the hospital where she was receiving treatment for a heart condition. The doctor gave her a pass for a few hours to visit her children, stop home, do a few things. Arriving home, she found dishes piled up and clothes unwashed. And she had a little bit of a mental breakdown that simple household chores could not be handled in her absence. She went to a drawer in the house and retrieved her husband's three fifty seven Magnum. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all right. Right. I, I I kind of feel like I see where this is going, and you're right. Not exp- not what I expected. Yeah. <laughs> Helen entered the police station around 2 o'clock and approached stenographer Dorothy Batatis. Helen invited Dorothy out for lunch, and Dorothy volunteered to drive. But only a few blocks away from the police station, Helen pulled out Stanley's magnum from her purse and shot Dorothy two or three <laughs> times in the stomach. Only two bullets were later found. She was soon dead in her car. Mrs. Lee Dealman found Dorothy a few minutes later when she noticed the parking meter was expired and the person parked there had apparently fallen asleep. But she wasn't asleep. (laughs) Helen left the scene by flagging down a police car and saying she needed a ride back to the hospital. Uh, And they gave her one. Because she's chief's wife. They know who she is. Yeah, so then they drive her back, and she readmits herself to the hospital to continue her heart treatment. While checking in, uh, a nurse handles her, you know, stuff, hangs up her coat, whatever, uh, and finds a recently fired Magnum in her purse. (laughs) Officers came to her room, and she admitted that she was involved in the shooting right away, saying that Dorothy was breaking up her home. She believed her husband had been having an affair with the police employee for some time. Although she remained confined to a hospital bed, she was put under police guard and charged with first-degree murder. Okay. See? See, you didn't see it going. No, no, this is not at all where I saw it going. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, A couple days later, the chief requested a leave of absence from the police and fire commission. It was granted. Um, He was temporarily replaced by Inspector Leo Buckman who had been on the force for a very long time. Hockdale said he had no plans to resign and would return to the job as soon as possible. The city agreed to continue paying him. Officers probed the chief's personal history, looking for clues about Helen Hockdale and the pair's relationship. Captain Arthur Riley was in charge of the investigation, and Mayor Eugene Hammond instructed him 
You are hereby advised that any attempt to interfere with the investigation is to be reported to me immediately. Now, obviously, what he's saying is if Chief Hockdale tries to interfere with the investigation, but really anybody could have interfered with it because I imagine when the chief of police or the chief of police's wife are under investigation, it's quite possible they have other friends on the police department that, that could step in there and do whatever they wanted yeah. to manipulate yeah. it or might do might do a half-assed job or accidentally lose yeah. something uh, i'm not saying they do that <laughs> but you know definitely this is a, a a person who has very well-placed friends yes so so be careful when investigating all right so the mayor urged him to find any and all evidence of an improper relationship between Stanley and Dorothy, the police employee, and interview Stanley's four children. One son could not be interviewed, son Robert, because he was actually serving a year in the Dane County Jail for having stolen the photography equipment. <laughs> Just a random side note right there. Huh? Random side <laughs> note. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, always looks great when the police chief's son's in jail, so... The mayor instructed the city attorney to drop formal charges against Hockdale in order to get him actually dismissed from the force instead of just a leave of absence. Uh, He did not publicly disclose what the charges were, but said, I feel the information already supplied is sufficient for me to ask for fire and police commission to dismiss, dismiss the chief, but because more information is on the way, we probably will not drop the charges until the investigation is completed. Once the charges have been drawn, we cannot add to them. He did make it known to the public that they found photos of Stanley and Dorothy together in Dorothy's purse, and other people had seen them together around town. They were more or less already confirming that he was having the affair. Still doesn't make it okay to go shoot her, though, from the wife's perspective. (laughs) No, no, but... From from the city's perspective, I mean, there's a couple of things here. First of all, th- like this is really bad publicity mm-hmm. to have the police chief's wife um, going on trial for murder. That's not great. But also, I'm not exactly sure what the, you know, how people felt about it at the time. But I have to assume that it doesn't look great when the chief of police is having a relationship with one of his employees. Yes. Like, I feel like that used to be more okay than it is now, but it still doesn't look great. Right. Yeah. I mean, especially when he's already married. Yes, definitely when you're already married. Yeah. That, that, that doesn't score you any points right there. Right. So. But I mean, like today we would call that sexual harassment. But but back in that day, I think that's kind of like a lot of times that happened. Mm-hmm. But I'm not saying it's okay, but saying how they might have treated it different. Anyway. Uh, three aldermen wanted to expand the investigation beyond the chief to the entire city hall, which they believed was corrupt from the top down. They had recently had meetings with the district attorney and the attorney general about starting a John Doe probe and turned over a 74-page report that they put together on corruption. Much of the report came from testimony from a recent city draftsman who was sentenced to prison for fraud. I'm not exactly sure what a draftsman does, but... But they had a city employee who basically gave them a whole list of people in town who he thought was corrupt. <laughs> but now, now this murder is the one. Is it, did I miss a piece of this? Would this is this murder is what triggers an investigation into corruption? Yes, because they consider what a, a police chief having an affair corrupt 
corruption? I think that at this point they kind of find hints behind the scenes that the chief isn't perfect because they're looking into his background more thoroughly. So I think like the affair is just like the tip of the iceberg here where they think there's other stuff going on. And and whether that's true or not, the city aldermen kind of take that as like an excuse to do this. And not going to lie, I mean, Kenosha was having some real problems. I mean, before, you know, not that long ago, if people recall from the last episode, I mean, like the Kenosha sheriff was involved in like the bribery mm-hmm. scheme. Some city aldermen were involved in the bribery scheme, you know, so... There's definitely some kind of corruption going on. Like, that's not really debatable. And so, it's just where the corruption exists yeah. is, the, is the question. So I don't know that there's, like, a direct connection here other than now that the police chief is basically stepping down, like, it's just another excuse of, like, bringing Bring up. And, like, we've got a real problem with our city officials. <laughs> uh, the chief formally resigned. He was on a leave of absence. He formally resigned on April 10th, a little more than a week after the shooting on the condition that he would be paid through June. The city actually agreed to that. After his attorney read the resignation letter, the mayor asked the aldermen to raise their hands if they approved. All 15 aldermen raised their hands, and the matter was settled in under 10 minutes without discussion. Hockdale told the press that he hates to quit without a fight, but if he had not resigned, he would have had to argue his case before the commission, which had a preliminary report on his private life. So, this is kind of like the thing. He's like, I don't want to quit being the police chief, but if I actually, like, contest it... Then I'm going to have to come out and tell the stories of all yeah. this stuff, and way more of this stuff is going to be revealed to everybody, and I just don't want that to be right. dragged out. Right. So, he's like, he's like, people can hear the rumors I was having an affair, and, th- and that's fine. But I don't want to actually have them, <laughs> like, tell the whole thing in the public... Like, that's not good. I don't want to have to go up in front of a board and t- testify about my affair, basically. Right. So he, he ends up resigning. After three weeks from the murder, Helen, his wife, was still in the hospital rather than jail. The doctor there told the sheriff that she was better off where she was because she was receiving regular medication for high blood pressure, and there's no way the jail could provide that. Judge Eugene Baker ordered a mental examination for Helen. She waived a preliminary hearing and was seeking a defense of insanity. So he picked out three doctors to test her. At their hearing, the three doctors said that Helen was mentally competent to stand trial and they did not think she was currently insane. The defense attorney successfully argued for a $25,000 bond and the money was posted by three friends of Helen's. So for $25,000, she got to go free on on a murder charge. I mean, not, Holy crap. not go free, you know, not go free, but out on bail. And, yeah. Which typically, when you're charged with first degree murder, you don't get let like, out. <laughs> so that's nice. Good for her. June 24th, 1963 was a very special day for the Hockdale family. <laughs> <laughs> on one hand... It was Chief Stanley Hockdale's 50th birthday. But it was also the first day of his wife's murder trial. (laughs) And the jury was selected. The original pool was 52 people, and after five hours, it was reduced down to the 12 people. Nine women and three men would decide her fate. 
A veterans convention had all the logo hotels booked, so the jury was sequestered in a dorm room at Carthage College. The next day, a Kenosha detective read parts of a statement that Helen had made to them after her arrest. She said that Stanley had told her to kill herself. She went down to the basement in their house and considered it, but then she, but then he laughed at her when she couldn't do it, saying, I knew you didn't have the guts. She said he beat her every chance he could get and threatened to kill her many times. After Helen accused him of cheating, the frequency of beatings increased. She said she had to have their sons break up the fights to stop him from killing her. Holy cow. Helen said she had Dorothy... Helen said she had told Dorothy that she was considering suing her for alienation of affection, and Dorothy laughed in her face. Dorothy told her that a lawsuit would be useless because all of her money was in her daughter's name. Helen said that this move was brazen and wise. Helen did not believe that the magnum was loaded when she confronted Dorothy, according to her police statement. So uh, this is probably some of the stuff the chief did not want. Coming out, yeah. Coming out at the police commission. Dr. George Weber testified that he spent several hours with Helen the night of the murder, and he did not think that she was sane on the day of the murder. Her understanding of right and wrong was not very good and did not improve quickly during their conversation. Helen ended up testifying in her own behalf, saying of Stanley, He hurt me, but I love him. I have always loved him. I am still very much in love with him. She said he slapped her, would beat her on the bedroom floor, and when she was diagnosed with her heart condition, he told her to throw away the pills and stop seeing the doctor because the bills were too high. Helen said she had started divorce proceedings three times but never followed through. She said, I wanted a divorce, but sometimes he was nice and he would bring me fresh rolls from the bakery. (laughs) That is really what she said. (laughs) That's all it takes, huh? Yeah. (laughs) A reporter asked Stanley how he felt about the testimony. He didn't deny any of it, but he said that this whole thing kind of makes me look like a beast. You think? (laughs) The district attorney cross-examined Helen by handing her the three fifty-seven magnum she used in the murder. I find this very questionable, but this is what he did. (laughs) Handing her the three fifty-seven magnum and asked her to load the gun. He handed her some blank shells and she loaded it. He asked her to pull the trigger. She did. He asked if it was hard to pull the trigger or easy. And she said it was hard, meaning that she had to really squeeze on it, not that Mm. it was an easy trigger. Mm. This was also the district attorney could ask, do you think it could have been fired accidentally? And she says, no. (laughs) Well, this isn't helping your case, right? (laughs) Well, it's not supposed to be. Oh, because she's... uh... This was, okay, this is the prosecutor or this whatever. This is the prosecutor Okay, now. gotcha, yeah. gotcha. I thought this was her lawyer, and I'm like, you're not helping her here. No, no, no. <laughs> no, so her her lawyer her lawyer has her take the stand and talk about how awful Stanley was. Which not that, again, not that this makes it okay to kill, kill somebody, somebody but... but... But explains, like, her mindset leading up to right. it. Right. Um, but the thing is, you don't have to testify on your own behalf when you're on trial. Like, you don't have to do that. Right. But once you do agree to do that, then you're open to cross-examination, which this is where we're at right now. Which is where we're at, yeah. So as soon as she tells her story, that means the prosecutor can ask just about Mm -hmm. anything. So um, that's that's why it's not a smart move to do that. Mm -hmm. Because when the prosecutor can present the evidence like 
to the person accused directly, unless they flat out lie on the stand, that kind of gets them. On the fifth and final day of the trial, the jury left to deliberate for three hours. They returned with the verdict. What do you think the verdict is? I mean, in this situation, I feel like it has to be guilty, but it's probably going to be not guilty. So are you saying not guilty? Uh, I was saying it should be guilty, but it's probably not guilty. Yeah, so let's go not guilty, because that's what I tend to go to. Okay. So It was not guilty. (laughs) She was found not guilty by reason of insanity. So So that's not really not guilty, uh, per se. Well, wait for it. (laughs) Wait for it. Okay. So so the judge then said, okay... We're going to bring you to the Oshkosh Asylum. So they brought her to the Oshkosh Asylum that same day where she was kept because she was declared insane. Mm -hmm. With his wife gone, Stanley Hockdale made a push to return as the Kenosha police chief. (laughs) He made a public interview saying that Milwaukee hoodlums were moving into Kenosha and had operated a major gambling operation out of a Kenosha restaurant for over a year. He said... I think I did a good job as chief in the past, and I know I will make a better chief as a result of the recent personal tragedy I went through. He said he did not believe the mafia rumors a year earlier, but after the outside muscle came in and killed Anthony Biernat, he couldn't deny it. And just to clarify that, Anthony Biernat was a, was a jukebox distributor who was killed about, at this point, about six months earlier. Yeah. Um, major, major case, and it's like, the, my entire book, Shale of Grave, is just that one case. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, like, not strictly connected to this murder, but because he brought it up. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, let me comment on that for a moment. I can't imagine that you would want to go publicly being like, I want to return as police chief after you just got really, really raked over the coals. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine any city wanting to hire him back. But they did. Uh, they did not. Okay, good. They, they did not. <laughs> um, and this is a really dick move here. To say, to say like, to say that he had a recent personal tragedy. You did not have a, a recent, recent personal person. tragedy. Your mistress was killed and your wife went on trial. Nothing happened to you. Well, I mean, he did lose his mistress and now his wife is thrown in jail. Right. So I guess that's kind of a personal tragedy. It, it is, but I mean, that's that's really being like, wow, poor me. <laughs> yeah. Like, really, dude, nothing happened to you. <laughs> so what a dick. But anyway, um, yeah, they did not. They did not hire him back. Um, He was actually also dropped as the treasurer of the Wisconsin Chiefs of Police Association um, because he was no longer a chief of police. Funny enough, at that same meeting, the Wisconsin Chiefs of Police Association also kicked out Sheboygan Chief Steen Heimke, who was the organization's vice president, because the chief of police in Sheboygan had also recently been fired for improper things. (laughs) Which we will talk about in a future Fox City's Murder and Mayhem episode. <laughs> really? <Yeah. laughs> because um, it's a small world that we live in, I guess. Yeah, but I mean, rough year that both Sheboygan and Kenosha lose their police chiefs because, like, not that Wisconsin's like a huge state by any means, but those are two of the bigger cities. Yeah, and uh, rough, rough year for police chiefs. All right. 
On December 23rd, 1963, so about six months after the trial, a sanity hearing was held before Judge Baker. At the hearing, the Oshkosh Asylum handed over a report saying that Helen was now sane and was very unlikely to murder anyone in the future. Two psychiatrists agreed with the report, and Helen was released in time to spend Christmas with her children. She never murdered anyone again. So that was six months later, you said? Yeah. Wow, so she so she killed somebody and essentially spent six months in an insane asylum. Wow. That yes. seems like a really, really not serious punishment right. for, for the crime. Right, and that's what I said. Like, like you said, like, oh, that's not really not guilty because it's not guilty by insanity. But, but basically, she got six months of medical care and they sent her home. Yeah. She didn't really serve any time for that. Yeah, I mean, you could you could be carrying a bag of weed and get more more of a turn <laughs> yeah. than that yeah. <laughs> for that. So, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it's a it's a tough one because like I, I'm sympathetic. Like I understand where she's coming from, and she clearly was not in her right mind that day. So I I'm sympathetic to that. But at the same time, I have to assume. The woman who was killed probably has a family and things yeah, like that. And they, I can't imagine they're too thrilled about that. Yeah, they're, <laughs> and that's totally not right. You, yeah. you took somebody's life regardless of what that person did to you or anything. That's just not right. Right, yeah. One of the things I'm most curious about with this story is is that, okay, so they launched this big investigation after after they get this guy out of sheriff, yeah. out of being, or the police chief, I'm sorry. Yes. And... From that point forward, do we start to see that? Do they fix the Kenosha con- corruption in the police department, or does it still just run rampantly corrupt? I can't say that I'm an expert on that. My general opinion is that it improves. I mean, I know that there's another detective who is very close with the gamblers in town, but generally speaking, I think this is kind of like the height of the of of them really investigating it and things being bad. I could be very wrong. I mean, like, obviously, this is the Milwaukee Mafia podcast, so my focus has always been on the Mafia stuff. Mm-hmm. So I don't know as much about, like, the city government Mint, stuff. Right. Um, but based on what I do know, it seems like it got better. Yeah, I mean, I, I would assume because you are researching the Mafia side of this prospect, you would know if there was rampant corruption yeah. after after this point, too. So Yeah, I don't recall there being anything major after this. But I could be very wrong. I mean... Come come back in a year when we get to that episode, <laughs> so but, but I, d- I don't believe so. And then uh, the other thing I find <clears throat> interesting about this story is that it just kind of like, I mean, this is a great example of just, I mean, that first episode, Gavin, you made this guy look like a, an, a hero. Right. You know, like he was literally a hero. Well, in the public, he was. Yeah. Yeah. A- and then now you go to this episode <laughs> it is just corruption and i mean well i shouldn't say not a lot of corruption He's, but he was no. just not a good guy right no no he it, everything about him from the first half like it's still true he still did shut down gambling and he still as far as we know was not involved in any bribery but he was on a personal level apparently he was not a very good person not a very good person yeah i mean he's he's Beating his wife, which is like not okay ever. He's telling her to go kill herself. No. He's not helping her take care of her medical conditions. He's he's hurting his wife 
in front of his children who have to break up the fight, which that's it's not like great. great. I mean, not that you should do it in the first place, but, yeah, but your I, children <laughs> have to stop you from killing their mother. Yeah, so. I mean, and I'm I'm fairly confident that if we anybody in Kenosha would not want this person, knowing that there's no way they would ever want this person to be a police chief right. in their town. Right. And 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 in a way, that's really scary. Yeah. If you think about it, just because you know you think that this person's doing great things, but but it's like, what is he really doing? Once you learn, you know. How he, I mean, he must have had a very little respect for human life to be able to do those kind of things to people that he's supposed to love. Yeah, you I know, suppose, yeah. So, yeah, and I don't know. The report that went to the police and fire commission, it was never made public because because of that agreement that he made with them. But I suspect if I or somebody requested the homicide investigation a lot of that same report would be in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, the little bits that I said here, like this was what was reported in the paper. And obviously what I'm able to cover in five to 10 minutes is not everything they talked about in five days of trial. So uh, I suspect that they dug pretty deep into his background and this might've just been like the worst of it, but they found some stuff. Mm-hmm. That's terrifying. So. Yeah. Okay, well, do you got anything else for this episode? Just a little tiny bit. Oh, he does have a little bit more. Just a little tiny bit. You're supposed to tell me when you're not done yet so you can just finish the story out before I start asking questions. No, 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 this is okay. So so, uh, so Stanley Hockdale um, did not become police chief again, not in Kenosha or anywhere else. He left Wisconsin, moved to Battle Creek, Michigan, and he took up work as an insurance agent. Just the kind of guy you want to sell your insurance to you, too, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He did later get remarried. Wow. Not okay. to not to Helen. But... <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> yeah. But, he, but as far as we know, at once, he, once all of this blew over, I mean, there's never reports of, did you look in to see if, like, there were reports of domestic stuff or something i mean i didn't look in any great detail but he he stayed out of the papers so so, and you well i don't know because it's it's in another state so maybe they it would never even be reported it wouldn't be a big deal because they wouldn't even realize he was a police chief at one point in time. maybe not so maybe not but i mean also this isn't good but i think people know and if they don't know Domestic abuse used to not really be considered a big deal. And that's not okay by any stretch, but it used to not really be a big deal. Really? Yeah. Like like it was just if was there I mean if if, 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 if it was if somebody to... if somebody called the cops on on a husband for hitting his wife and the cops showed up, they might break up the fight, but they're not going to arrest the Still guy. guy. Really? Yeah. I didn't see that. I did not know. Yeah, that's so, a that's a relatively new thing where they actually do something about it. Wow, well, that's also very terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> to me. So, and that kind of goes back to because then if the mentality with with like beating, I mean, this is an extreme a, case, but but even so, like it was treated very differently. So was it was it because were people not really then? Uh, I, I would assume people are not as apt to feel sorry for the wife. So, like, 
she wasn't getting v- very much compassion that she killed this person mm. because, you know, like that wasn't that big of a deal to people. Well, Does that make sense? Or, or I guess that's different because that was an affair. And it, see, and I don't, and I don't know. Like the general public might have really disliked domestic abuse. I'm just saying from a legal standpoint, there just there really wasn't. wasn't much done about it. This is this is the '60s, which isn't that long ago. But it was really a different time. I mean, if if a husband came home from work and his dinner wasn't ready and he slapped his wife, that's what happened. Mm-hmm. She could do nothing about that. So that's how it was. And I, which again, not okay. It was never okay. okay. But that's that. But that was the but way you couldn't do anything about it. And that was the way society was back yeah. in those days. So. Yeah. Wow. Well, I definitely learned something from this one then because yeah. I never knew, realized that. So. Yeah, I mean, and feel free, anybody listening, feel free to look it up and, like, you know, correct me because I don't know, like, at what point this changed, but I'm sure you can find that. Mm. I'm sure that there's statistics of when they actually started doing anything about it. And this could have been an era where the laws weren't quite there yet. Mm-hmm. But everybody was very, very against it because, you know, everybody yeah. gets against it. And then the government looks at it and says, oh, we have to do something yeah. about this because it's too much controversy. So yeah. maybe this is kind of like in a in a one of those periods where it, it was kind of a transition phase. Yeah, of it, so. I mean, not to oversimplify it, but I, I think a lot of this just comes down to we're still in a time period where. Like 99% of husbands are working and still probably more than half of the wives are are at home. Right. It just creates that disparity there where the entire household is dependent on the husband. So, So, you know, the the woman could say, hey, I got hit, but what's she going to do about it? Yeah. She doesn't make a penny to her own name, you know. So it's just, it was the way society was structured. What could she do? Mm Mm-hmm. So I don't know. We're, this is off on a tangent, a tangent yes. but but I mean, somebody can can correct me on that, or if they want to send statistics like more accurately, like go for it. Because like I'm not an expert on domestic abuse, <laughs> but but definitely I can tell you that that it was not like today. Like you hit somebody once and you're a monster, monster. as you should be. But it was did not used to be like that okay. at yeah. all. All right. Well, with that, we can wrap this episode up, I think. Yeah. Um, as usual, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review on your favorite podcast player. And uh, we do have a Patreon. Go check that out at patreon.com slash Milwaukee Mafia, or you can find it on the new MilwaukeeMafia.com website. Yeah. And we will be back in a week with new Patreon episode and two weeks with a new Mafia episode. Thanks, every. Oh, and Gavin, I'm sorry. What? Do your contact info. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was so good. But, but yeah, you can also email uh, MilwaukeeMafia at gmail.com. And I've I've gotten a few emails lately. It comes to go. Sometimes I go a week and nothing. And sometimes I go a week and I get a few. So I don't know why that is, but um, definitely feel free to reach out. I try to respond quickly, usually within a day or two. So, um, yeah. Yeah, hit me up with any comments, questions, concerns, um, you know, photos. Uh, if you got some old <laughs> photos you want to show me, I'll take anything, whatever. All right, with that, well, then we'll wrap this episode up. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you back next week. Bye.
Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next time for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history.